Today our Bible reading is taken from Matthew 6, verse 9 to 14. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Thanks to our younger son, Ollie Benyon, it's a great privilege for me to talk to you today. I'm Tom Benyon, former Member of Parliament. I served in the Armed Forces for six years. I'm a graduate of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. I'm a founder of the United Kingdom charity Zane, Zimbabwean National Emergency, and co-founder of CEF, the Community Emergency Food Bank in Oxford. I didn't believe a word of the Gospel until I was 41. Very late. I had a successful career and I was well off. I lived by the old adage, Dear God, I don't need you right now. I'm having a great time. If I do need you, I may give you a ring. However, I met a startling man called Kwaku Boateng, who was a Ghanaian. He'd been Home Secretary in the Ghanaian government. He watched me on an aeroplane and decided, right out of the blue, that I needed saving. He was totally out of my culture, not in the least respectable or polite. And in room 431 of the Washington Hilton Hotel in New York, Kwaku Bateng, father of Paul, who was a minister in Tony Blair's government, screamed at me to lie on the floor and repent of my sins. I should tell to do it at the top of my voice and then commit my life to Jesus Christ. Here was I, privately educated, a past guards officer, a past member of parliament and wholly unused to the like of Kwaku. I only did what he wanted to get him out of my room. However, my experience demonstrates that. However ignoble the motive might be, the words of your mouth can make a life-changing difference. My conversion experience took time, but by the end, through grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, it marinated my whole family in an extraordinary way. But that story is for another time. So we come to yet another Remembrance Sunday, and I wonder of anything it means to you. We're asked to particularly remember the 82 million people who died in World Wars One and Two, and in the years since. I wonder if those wars mean anything to those much under my age. It was the ghastly Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's genius propagandist, who said in 1942 that, of course, while the death of one man is a tragedy, the death of a million is a mere statistic. I fear he is right. So do we really care? The war is out of most people's memory, as relevant as the Roman invasion of Britain to many. Oh, Grandad's war, there he goes again, stories that were boring, out of touch out of mind. Today all we see of the last war is a few old men tossing past the cenotaph on Zimmer frames. 
Does anyone care? Oh, and the old war film, if you'd nothing else on. Remembrance Sunday, when we cross our fingers, when we come to that part that says, they shall never be forgotten. Oh, yes, they will. To the young, these wars are perhaps just another thing to remember. With little impact on our present lives, and anyway, all my evidence indicates that out of sight, out of mind, we're all too concerned with the present to worry about the wars or old people. But I wonder if you've heard of Helen Bamber. Helen dedicated her life to tending victims of torture and victims from the likes of Belsen and other concentration camps from Nazi Germany. She said that after a while she grew hardened to stories of horrors of torture, for after all there are only so many ways to inflict unspeakable cruelties on men and women. She got used to victims so scarred they rocked backwards and forwards, rendered speechless from the horrors that had been inflicted on them. But she said that the stories of torture were not the most shocking things she came across in her work. What appalled her more was that when they tried to introduce some of the concentration camp victims back to the communities, what happened? Nobody wanted to know. No one really wanted to be reminded of the past. Just go away! It's all for the best and it's forgotten. So let's get real. Who really cares? But I assure you, those wars made life-changing impact on all those who fought in them. Through my charity Zane, 12 to 15 years ago, I talked to many of those veterans in the care homes in Zimbabwe. Of course, today, these old men are nearly all dead now. But I made a point of asking, where had you served? They came alive, as they told me, North Africa, Italy, always on the D-Day landings. Then I always asked them, what was it like? There'd be a pause. They would answer. It was amazing. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. It changed my life totally. The friends I made, the calls, the fear. OK, of course, the boredom, occasional exultation, the joys, the horror, the friends. Everything was in high relief. It was so hard to return to the pointless tedium and trivia of civilian life. They saw the rest of their lives through the prism of their war experience. And one very thoughtful old man told me that his war life had purpose. He said, I knew what my life was for. He asked me what I thought today's cause was all about. Is it more money? More pleasure? More fun? What's the point of so many people's lives? He wasn't suggesting, of course, that war was a good thing. Of course not. But paradoxically, amazing things come out of wars, and not all of them are negative. One such is a profound self-knowledge. How self-aware are we? How would we have done if we'd been there, in the face of terrifying danger or a moral dilemma? Would we have obeyed an appalling order that would place our lives and souls in jeopardy? Or not? We rarely face such things in civilian life. You look very respectable, nice people, highly intelligent, rule keepers, you have orderly lives. What's your jobs, I wonder? Lecturers, perhaps? Magistrates? Students? Bankers? Business start-uppers? Religious types. You're all deeply religious and respectable people like me. Our lives aren't programmed to land us in extreme circumstances, but what if you had landed in them? What would we have done? 
Do you know if our live circumstances had conspired differently, we might have ended up being convicted of war crimes? But we've been blessed by grace and two very simple Bible verses. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. What I want to talk about is what would we have done if we'd been involved in the instance I'm about to relate? What if your life circumstances had been very different and you'd been there? Because life's a lottery, isn't it? A lot of random chance of where and when you were born. 82 million people died in World War One and Two. 82 million. As an aside, one of our vicars referred, referred to death as passing away. Maybe that's what happens in civilian life. But let me tell you that the 82 million who died in both these wars didn't pass away. They died by gassing. Bombs landed on them, so they vanished. Or they're machine-gunned, sometimes by their own armies to stop them running away. Or snipers got them. Or they were drowned. Or they died in medical experiments. Have you heard of Dr Mengele? Or they starved to death, building railways. Or they froze to death. Or they died for want of medicines. Or they tortured to death or died in concentration camps. Or by atomic explosions in Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Brave or not so brave, the 82 million people were killed. They were killed. They are dead. None of them passed away. Let me take you by the hand back in time to explore our self-awareness and tell you about a few people who laid their lives down for others. But first, a little story about me that shows how brave I am when no one is looking. Edinburgh in the late 50s, when I was 11. My prep school. I can still see a Nigerian boy, Labinjo, long and thin and usually snivelling. A rare black child of middle-class Edinburgh. There were no race lords then. There he was, circled by children, all screaming, racist abuse at him. His head was in his hands and he was weeping, begging for mercy from the boys. And boys and girls can be very unpleasant, you know. It's a sort of Lord of the Flies instance. Boys spitting and kicking and chanting at poor Labinjo was unable to get out of the ring. I knew it was wrong. I knew I should do something about it. And guess what I did? I dived in and kicked the biggest boy out of the way and rescued Labinjo. Dream on. The reality is that I was fat and spotty with a stammer. And I was worried that if they'd stopped kicking him, they might turn on me. I hoped someone else would help him, but not me. So I did nothing. OK, I was only a child. But I've never forgotten this instance. What would you, what would you have done? A bit more about me. I told you earlier I was in the army. I was in the guards, actually, the Scots guards, since you ask. I was 20 and I was commissioned. I can tell you I love the uniform. The scarlet, the bearskin, the swagger and all the rest. I reckon we were the best there were. I was immensely proud of myself and the regiment and king and country too. But if I'd been born 30 years earlier and in Germany, I'd have served in a German army. Wanting the smartest and best, I might well have served in a Waffen-SS. High reputation, the girls loved it, great uniform, snappy hat with a silver skull and crossbones on it, eyes thin and blue-eyed and quite good-looking in my day. I might have made a fine Nazi officer, full of pride at the idea of us being the best and the master race. 
After all, empire depended on that illusion. The Nazis were, on reflection, only a few steps further down the nightwear track than I was in my smart regiment in the United Kingdom all those years ago. If I'd been in a Waffen-SS aged 19 or 20, and you'd been there too, what would we have done at the initiation ceremony? New young officers were sometimes forced to machine gun a barn stuffed with men and women and shoot, and shoot to kill, and if you refused, you'd have been disgraced as a coward. All your colleagues would have faced the same test and passed it. Would you face disgrace? Would you have killed other people? You were 20, mind, and living in a different age. And if we'd passed the initiation test, we would be open to the charge of war crimes. But through the grace of God, I was born when I was in the United Kingdom too, so I'm a good guy. Good old Tom Bennion, OBE. Quite fortunate, that. So go back to the verses. Lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from the evil one. Come with me, back again. A hot day on June the 10th, 1944. It was a Saturday. It was market day, four days after D-Day. Come with me to Orida Saglan, a sleepy little village in central France, 14 miles from Limoges. Up the road that afternoon, drove 200 soldiers. It was three company at Dierfuhrer SS Regiment, under the command of Sturmbannfuhrer Dickmann. The second in command was Heinz Bass. They're travelling to relieve their colleagues in Normandy to help stem the invasion. On the way, they heard that one of their colleagues, Helmut Kampf, had been captured. So they're seeking reprisals. The troops encircled the village. No one could escape. Then it separated the bewildered men who were all corralled in the village square. Then the terrified women and the hysterical and screaming children were shut in the church. The troops sewed the place with incendiary devices, set it alight. Anyone who escaped, the flames were shot. In two hours, the soldiers machine-gunned and burned alive 652 unarmed villagers. The question I want to ask is, if you'd been one of the soldiers, would you have joined in? Would you have resisted and run the danger of being summarily executed for refusing an order? What would I have done? Please think, what would you have done? There was one act of compassion reported that day, just one. In a burning house, two Jewish children tried to escape and ran screaming into a room where they found themselves confronted by a soldier with a sten gun. They knelt weeping and begged for mercy. The soldier pointed his gun, but apparently changed his mind and let them escape into the surrounding woods. No one knows his name. It was a working of common grace. Who was he? Let's hope we would have done the same. But would we? The soldier was risking his life. He otherwise might have been shot. How brave are we? At the trial of war crimes after the war, their defence was, it was nothing to what we did in Russia. President de Gaulle has kept the village as it was on that dreadful day. There it is. You can see it today. Rusting, derelict cars, discarded children's toys, ancient typewriters, all rusting and weeping in the rain as a reminder 
of man's inhumanity to man. But none of us were there. None of us were tested. By the grace of God, we were spared. He lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Come with me now to visit the evil death camp Auschwitz, concentration camps, Poland, Sunday, July the 20th, 1941. It's 10 in the morning. There is a parade. Imagine you are there. A prisoner had escaped. And on a prisoner's parade, Camp Commandant Hautemführer Karl Fritsch ordered that ten men should, as a reprisal, be starved to death in a condemned cell, a cell in cell block 11. One of the ten, called Garnitscher, cried out, I have a wife and children. Please, God, spare me. Father Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish priest, was in the ranks of prisoners and overheard the cry. He knew John, chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. So that's what he did. He asked the commandant, I did a priest and a single man, whether he could allow him to take the place of Garnitscher, the family man. An exchange was permitted. Colby joined the group of condemned men. They deprived of food and water, and in a searing summer heat, they suffered unbearable torments and privation. On day 12, only Colby was left. He was executed with a carbolic injection. His cell is permanently lit by a candle, a light shining in the darkness of a Stygian night that is Auschwitz. We here are Christians. Would we have laid down our lives for our friends? Or would we find an excuse? What a choice. Would you have done what Colby did? Would I? And he does not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now imagine a crowded court in Tel Aviv in June 1960. There in the dock was Ricardo Clements, automobile worker. He looked like every other boring little clerk. He was in fact one of the architects of the final solution from 1942 to 1944. This leading Nazi arranged the mechanics of the transportation of six million Jews to their hideous death in concentration camps. Clement's real name, of course, was Adolf Eichmann. He'd escaped to rest in Germany, 1945 and 6, and escaped to Buenos Aires. Eichmann had been arrested by Israel's Secret Service Mossad and smuggled to Israel. He'd been working under a false name as a Mercedes mechanic for 12 years. The court case against Eichmann was detailed. Just imagine the scene in the courtroom. It's harrowing and ghastly. Tales of starvation and torture with film clips of bulldozers shoveling emaciated bodies into pits. You'll have seen the films and turned away in disgust. Eichmann's defence was, the state considered Jews as vermin. They should be murdered. He was a law-abiding man. And he also pleaded that he wasn't actually involved in killing anyone himself. He was just obeying orders. If he hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. His defence rested on orders, orders, orders. He had a wife and children to feed. 
So would anyone else have done? What would we have done? What would I have done? The dark trial went on and on till one of the defence witnesses was asked by the lawyers. His name was Abakovna. How had he escaped from a terror? How was it that he was alive? Kovna replied, I was saved by a German sergeant, Anton Schmidt. Silence fell on the court. Another ray of light in the darkness. Who was this Sergeant Schmidt? Why and how had he rescued this man? Now we know that he was an ordinary soldier who decided that he had to act. The answer is, to all this, he said, however dreadful are the actions of the vast majority, and they're usually dreadful, take a look at the passive, supine, wholly useless German church, for starters. There will always be at least one man or woman who will cry, in heaven's name, enough is enough. That man was Anton Schmidt. He did a desk job, relocating German soldiers to their units. He heard and saw out of his window countless Jews being brutalised and shot, and he could bear it no longer. He decided he had to risk his own life and save as many Jews as he could. He ended up by saving around 300 of them. He was another Schindler. He was caught by the Nazis, inevitably, and cruelly executed on the 13th of April, 1943, aged 42. Back home, his wife was scorned at being married to a traitor. After the war, Israel awarded him the accolade of the righteous among the nations. Would we have risked scorn and death to save Jews? What would you have done? What would I have done? Through grace, we remain untested. We weren't there. We're spared having to make that choice. We go back to my prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now come with me on August the 12th, 1942, to Fres Prison, the second largest in France. In a cell block lay a brutalised Belgian woman, Suzanne Spark. She was 39, mother of two children. In the evening, she was visited by a Gestapo officer, Heinz Panwick. After nine months, they'd finished torturing Suzanne. She was starved and living in the most appalling circumstances. Under torture, Suzanne had refused to answer questions to betray her French resistance brothers and sisters. After staring at a starved, tormented figure for some time, Panwick took out his pistol and calmly murdered her. Why did all this happen? The story is simple. Suzanne came from a prosperous Belgian banking family. She was happily married and a mother of two children. For many years she lived as a rich Parisian socialite, an enviable life of parties, ease and luxury. And from her sumptuous flat in 1942, Suzanne watched in horror as the tentacles of the Nazi regime grew ever tighter and began to deport the Jews to the death camps. And Suzanne cried to her husband, For God's sake, enough is enough. She then left her easy life to join the French resistance. Let me tell you, her friends kept their heads down and couldn't have cared less what happened to the Jewish people. Perhaps they lived in the belief that God helps those who help themselves. 
which Suzanne laid down her life by rescuing 163 French Jewish children who were facing deportation to the death camps where they would die horrible deaths. Suzanne housed some of those children in her own house. She fed and clothed them. She was betrayed in October 1943, imprisoned, then tortured and killed in great degradation. If you've been living safely and comfortable in Paris in 1942 and then watching children be killed, would you risk your life for them? Would I? What would we do? We weren't there. We have never been tested. So go back to my prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So how would we have conducted ourselves if we had been at Oradour, or in Auschwitz, or in Sergeant Schmidt's place? And remember, Helen Bamba. Would we help victims of torture back into the community? Will we turn away because we don't want to be reminded of the horror? Will we do what we're ordered to do, however monstrous, to save our own lives and our own skin? How self-aware are we? How self-aware am I? Will we lay down our lives for others as Jesus did and his father Maximilian Kolbe did? Do we really care about others as we are commanded to do? Thanks to God, we've never been tested. Pray to God, we never will be tested in this way, with really hard choices. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.